Open your Bibles up to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, we are having Christmas in Isaiah for this month. According to a website that I found online, of course, doesn't necessarily mean it's true, <laughs> but it's bump.com, kind of baby bump, you know, get it? Okay. A unique baby name made it to the top 100 in 2020. You want to guess what it is? Close. It's Corona. That's right. They were parents who named their child after a virus. In fact, enough that it put it in the top 100. In fact, uh, I was reading on March 27, 2020, two twins were born. And uh, the boy was given the name COVID and the girl the name Corona. And the 27-year-old mother said in an interview, the delivery happened after facing several difficulties and therefore my husband and I wanted to make the day memorable. <laughs> Little did they know in March, it'd make the whole year memorable. And so those kids, hopefully they don't get picked on in elementary if they're still wearing masks, you know. Anyways, no. But names sometimes help us remember um, help us to remember something special or sometimes people name their children a certain name to, uh, to signify something like they did. In our text, we're going to see that God gave a name to a baby to give us hope for this world. So we're in Isaiah. We're going to start in chapter 8. The title of my sermon today is Hope in a Christmas Name. Hope in a Christmas Name. We're going to cover actually both chapters, 7 and 8, this morning. In this, in this text, we're going to find some odd names that were given to infants by their fathers. They were given actually by God to Isaiah um, to reveal the promises of God. My key text, really, I'm not going to go read through the whole uh, two chapters. My key text is chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Notice that God offers, in these two verses, God offers the hope of, uh, his hope through the revelation of the meaning of their names. So look at verse 17. Isaiah 8, 17 reads, this is Isaiah speaking. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. That's the Lord. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for, from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah wrote that his name and the names of his children were signs of hope for God's people. Now Isaiah's name meant, means, it means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is Salvation, the Lord saves. And his name was, was meant to, to give hope that God is the one who saves us. Then his wife became pregnant and God told them to name their first child, Sher Jassib. That's a good name. Sher Jassib means a remnant shall return. In fact, you can look in Isaiah chapter 7. Look down in verse 3. You can see the Lord there in verse 3 said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz and you and share Jasub, your son. So his name 
gave hope to Israel that God's judgment for their sin would, would not be would not completely destroy Israel, but actually a remnant would, would remain and eventually a Messiah would come through that. And so Shir Jasib means a remnant shall return. Then his wife had another baby. <laughs> and God told him to name that baby Mayor Shala Hashbaz. Now, poor kindergartner. I mean, can you imagine? Like write your name in the top of the paper and it has to go to the other side. And then you can see that name in verse 3 of chapter 8. So chapter 8, verse 3, he says, Isaiah says, I went to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said to me, call his name, Mayor Shalah, Mayor Shalah Hashbaz, which means speed, spoil, hasten, splendor. And so the, plunder. So this was a description of how quick and devastating God's judgment would be. So speed, Assyria, was going to come down with speed and spoil and hasten and plunder. And so Isaiah wrote his name on a sign. He actually put it on a wall, probably the wall entering into the city. So he wrote his son's name up there. And his son's name was a prophecy that God would send Assyria to judge. And also it proved that God would be faithful to keep his word. Now I want you to imagine something. Imagine Isaiah in his home with these two children in his home. Shared Jasim, Mayor Shala, Hashbaz. <laughs> I dare someone to name their kid that. I want you to imagine them around a, a, maybe a little fire and they're discussing what's going on in Jerusalem. 16 years previous to chapter 7, King Uzziah had died. Remember King Uzziah was a king who was very prosperous. He was dominant amongst his enemies. And so there was no really one to oppose him. But now, 16 years later, his grandson, so King Ahaz is his grandson. He's the king and everything's falling apart. He's being attacked from every side. Enemies are threatening him. They're threatening to kill him. King Ahaz was an evil king. He decided to replace the worship of God with the worship of Moloch. In fact, at one point, he takes his son and he human sacrifices his son. That's how bad things were. He gave himself and his country over to immorality and perversion. And you can imagine Isaiah and his wife sitting around a fire at night, considering what happened in the past 16, 17, 20 years and how the country is now in decline. How it looks like everything is going to fall apart. It, it looks like Jerusalem is going to be invaded. And you can imagine the fear that came upon them. You can imagine the fear as they talked about what's going to happen to their children. What's going to happen to the future of their country? What's going to happen to the future of, of, their, great of their grandchildren? You know, I don't know if I describe that and you start thinking about America. I know I did. I was thinking about how there was a prosperous time in Judah and how it quickly declined. I think about our country, how we have, as a country, sacrificed our children, humans sacrificed our children to the God of convenience through abortion. Think about that. We have given ourselves over to the lusts of our hearts with sexual perversion. And so much like Judah, we have followed that perverse, evil way. God is patient. 
And he's patient even with our country. But God also is just. And our country will receive one day the same type of judgment that Judah received. In fact, I think probably right now we see our countries under that. And sometimes we can think about our past and how we grew up <laughs> and think, wow, that was, a really, that was really great. And that's changing. And we can think about the future and we can be fearful of what may happen. I think about Isaiah there with his wife, probably discussing some of that kind of stuff. And then he looks at his children. And God gave his children a name to remember his promise. Mayor Shala Hashbaz. God sends armies and he rules nations, which means what? When he looked at that child, he remembered what? God is the one in control. He's ruling actually over the world. Share Jasub. God will preserve his people. He's faithful to those who trust him. And even his own name, Isaiah, Yahweh, the Lord is the one who saves. In fact, look down in verse 17, 18. You'll notice there, his hope is in that Lord. Verse 17 says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. So the Lord is with Israel. He is present in Israel, but he's hiding his face. It's like, it's like he's, he's present, but he's not seen. Of course, it's their own spiritual blindness. And he says, but I'm going to hope in him. And then notice, he says, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. And where does he dwell? He dwells in Mount Zion. In other words, he's with them there. He's present with them. And though the people of Judah and Jerusalem didn't acknowledge the Lord's presence, though they rejected the Lord, he still dwells there. He is the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. He is, you could say it this way, he is God with us. And so what's amazing to see in this text is that God promises there'll be one who's born, his name will be Emmanuel. He is God with us. Us. In other words, God will not abandon his people. He has not abandoned his people. He is present with his people and someday he will come and he will be with his people. God dwells with us. That's really what the name Emmanuel means. It means that God is with us and reminded Israel, Judah, the Jewish people and us that God desires to dwell with his people. That's an amazing thing to think about. God actually created us to fellowship with him. He wants us to fellowship with him. He provided Jesus as God with us so that we could have the ability to fellowship with him and someday we will be able to be in his presence. God dwelt with us in the incarnation. That's Jesus' birth. He dwells with us now through his Holy Spirit and one day we will dwell with him. And so my outline is pretty simple this morning. We're going to look at the hope of Emmanuel and basically what the hope of Emmanuel means. So let's do this. Let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll dive into this text. Father, we are so thankful for the revelation of your word. How many people around this globe don't have it or don't have um, all of it? And we have a precious treasure in front of us. And what we're looking at today is history or in prophecy <clears throat> but also hope, hope for us, hope for our world. And so may we trust in you here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm gonna 
give you a little overview of what's happening in Isaiah 7 and 8, I'm going to tell you a little poem. I wrote this poem, so if it's bad, <clears throat> tell us a little story. So hopefully, children here, you can pay attention to this. Once upon a time, there was a mouse who was safe in his little house. But next door lived two rats who bullied and raided his homely flat. The mouse was afraid of these ratly two, so over to the big cat he flew. There's our cat. <laughs> the cat quickly sprang to the mousie's aid. The rats were gobbled up in that crusade. But there was something the mouse didn't consider. That was that he was also eyed for dinner. To the wrong friend did that mouse go. The hungry cat quickly turned into a foe. Now, if you understand this text, you will realize I'm actually speaking of Israel. Israel is that mousy cat, or mousy, I'm sorry, little mouse. Um, King Ahaz is the mouse that seems safe in Jerusalem. There are two northern kingdoms, Israel and Syria, were those little rats that attacked. And King Ahaz was afraid of them, so he called on the mightier um, Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria, to come and help. And sure enough, they came and helped. They wiped out Israel and Syria, but then they came and eventually attacked Judah too. And chapter 7 starts really at the beginning of this story with King Ahaz, the king of Judah. He's terrified at the coming of the armies of Israel and Syria. And so we see here at the beginning of chapter 7, he's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's probably watching them uh, shore up some of the fortifications. And Isaiah comes out with his son. You can see that down in chapter 7, verse 2. So let's read that together. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Here he brings out Sher Jasib. A remnant shall return. In verse 2, when the, the house of David, that's the king's house, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook. They were afraid. They shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were scared out of their mind. Verse 3, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and share Jasub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. In other words, right outside there of Jerusalem. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in, of, in Syria, the son of Remaliah. So King Ahaz was terrified of the armies of Israel and Syria. And when we're afraid of something, what do we want? When we're scared, what do we want? We want something greater, something bigger to come in and help us, right? When a child's scared in his bed, he calls out for his mom and dad. When a swimmer is struggling in the water, he calls out for a lifeguard. When a person's sick with an illness, he seeks the presence of a doctor. And King Ahaz was afraid, and so he, he, he wanted the presence of something greater to come and help him. Who should King Ahaz have called on to help him? God, the Lord, he's the great one. The Lord is the God of Judah, and he was present with them. And what we're going to see in our text is that God wanted his people to seek his presence. But of course, they reject him. When I speak of the presence of God, I think it's important for us to understand. We're not talking about God being far away and us being like, can you please come here? 
He's all present. God is all present, which, which means that he fills his creation with his presence and power. Living in his presence doesn't mean we're trying to get him to come here. It means that we acknowledge he already is here. It's we, we acknowledge he's already here and that he is the king. He's the one that's in charge. He's the sovereign. It means we therefore submit to him. It recognizes that he's here, he's the king, and we are to live in obedience to him. That's what it means to live in God's presence. And so God wanted Judah and King Ahaz and his people to seek his presence, to recognize, acknowledge he's there, he's present, he's the king. But they rejected him again. In this text, the Lord promised that he was going to act on behalf of Judah. And how was he going to do that? Well, he says there that he was going to cut down these two smoldering stumps. So the picture is that Israel and Syria are like two large trees that God cuts down and he burns. And now they're just two helpless little stumps that are smoldering. In other words, they're no threat to, to him. And they weren't yet, but it was, the idea is that it's, it's like God had already done it because God had promised that it was going to be done. And so he offered to King Ahaz proof Proof, I'm with, is, I'm with Judah, I'm with you. I, I, I can prove it to you and I promise I'll preserve your line. And really the threat here for King Ahaz was that the king of Israel was gonna come kill him and his family and set up another king. And so God says, listen, I'm with you and I promise I'm gonna, I can prove it to you. And let's in fact look down in verse number 10. He says, the Bible says, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol and or as high as the heaven. So God is saying, ask anything you want and I'll prove to you I'm with you and I will act on your behalf and I will do what I say. Now think about that. If God came to you and said, ask for a sign as proof that I'm with you and I'll work on your behalf, what would you ask for? I mean, anything. I was walking this morning out here and I looked in the sky and I thought, what if I asked for two moons, you know? I mean, you're like, well, that's impossible. He said anything, right? Or what if, what if, what if we, if you're more greedy, maybe you thought, maybe I want my whole house to be filled with gold or maybe no more virus <laughs> and no one ever talking about it again. Anything you want. It could be as great or as small, but look at verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, why not? Well, it was not because he was pious or genuinely interested in obedience. He didn't want a sign because he didn't want Yahweh God. He didn't want God in his life. He wanted to rule his own life, to live for himself. He wanted to be able to ignore God and say, I'm going to live God, how I want to live. In effect, what he's doing here, he's saying, God, it's my life. I want to rule my life and don't get involved in my life. And he does that with this pious phrase here. This is the blindness of a fool. The fool created to dwell in the presence of God, created to fellowship with God, but rejects God. And I think that so often we find ourselves like King Ahaz, don't we? God wants to fellowship with us. He wants us to seek his presence. And how often do we ignore him? Think about King Ahaz, who had a prophet speaking the words. Think about we have God's words. 
We have the availability to get up and fellowship with God every day. And how often do we ignore it and put it down and our Bibles are in the same place that it was the last Sunday that we, where we left it. And we often, like Ahaz, with our piety, put God aside and say, I'm going to live my life my way, Lord. I'm not going to seek your presence. But God, he gave him a sign anyways. And actually this sign what is one of the most extremely impossible signs imaginable. He said, there's going to be a virgin who's going to have a baby. By the way, that's impossible, right? Amen. And even more than that, this baby would be called God. God with us. Verse 13, look at that. He says, and he said, here then, O house of David. And so he switches from speaking to Ahaz to now speaking to David's house or David's um, genealogy here, his, his, his children, his children's children. Oh, house of David. Is it too little for you? And that word you right there is in the plural. So it's not just to Ahaz, this is to a group of people. To you, to weary men that you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord will give, um, will give you a sign. That's to the house of Israel, house of David. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Shall call his name Emmanuel. King Ahaz rejected the presence of God and didn't want a relationship with God, but God still wanted to dwell with his people. And right here, God promised a sign that he would not abandon his people and he would not particularly abandon David in the promise he made to David or David's house and the promise he made to David. What was the promise? That your kingly line would continue on forever, which means there'd be someone who comes and he would be Messiah and he would be the king forever. So the sign was a promise that God would not abandon his people and that God's desire was to dwell with his people in close fellowship. And we see that in the name he says there. He says, he will be called Emmanuel, God dwells with his people, God with us. And friends, do you realize that God made us to enjoy his presence? From the very beginning, as I said this morning, from the very beginning of creation, it was God's desire to dwell with us. And that should blow our minds because we we're not worthy of that. Here we are just creatures. Here's the eternal God and he wants to dwell with us. And so here's the promise of God or a sign that God desires this. And what's the sign? A virgin would have a baby who would be divine. That's what he says. He says, he will be called God dwelling with us. Notice the characteristics of this baby. First, he has a human mother, but no human father because he's born of a virgin, right? He is in, in the presence. He is, he is the presence of God himself. So that, therefore, what does that mean? It means he is Yahweh God. And then we're going to see this later on. But look down in chapter 8, verses 8, in verse 10, and the very end of both those verses, you can see that there, the name Yahweh, the word Yahweh comes up once, or no, sorry, not Yahweh, the word Emmanuel comes up again. And we're going to see that this Emmanuel is the owner of Israel, he is the judge, and he's a sovereign of Israel. So the hope of the name Emmanuel is the hope that God would dwell with his people. God's presence would come, therefore, to save his people in the person of Emmanuel. So 700 years after this prophecy, a virgin did come. And so go with me to Matthew chapter 1. 
This passage this morning was read by Norm, but I'm just going to highlight it again. So Matthew chapter 1. 700 years later, there was a young girl, a young lady. The Bible records that she was a virgin, and yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, she had a baby named Emmanuel. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, the first number of verses there, you see the promise of God that the line of David would not end. You see that God kept his promise. That's pretty neat to see that. And then in verse 20, you can see what the angel says to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's not from anyone else. It's a miracle. It's a sign. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And what's the purpose of this Emmanuel coming? For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So who is Emmanuel? Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, the Bible says, Therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren. The incarnation had to take place. He had to become human. He's God Truly God and truly human, it had to happen so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and all things pertain to God to make propitiation for the sins of many. In other words, God had to come dwell with us to take our punishment for our sins so he could heal our sin-sick souls so, our, so we wouldn't have to be separated from God forever, but that we could have eternal life. And then we could dwell with him forever. So the hope of Emmanuel is the hope that we can dwell with God because God came to dwell with us and died in our place. Isn't that an amazing reality? Amazing truth in the scriptures. So the hope of Emmanuel means also that God's presence would come to judge by the power of Emmanuel. God's presence would come to judge by the power of Emmanuel. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 7. God wanted his people to live in his presence, to acknowledge that he is the king of kings. But King Ahaz and the people rejected the Lord. They decided to live life for themselves and for their own lusts. And therefore they brought judgment upon them. And what's interesting about the hope of Emmanuel, that God is with us, is that the same God who dwells with us that offers salvation to those who believe in him is the, the same God who actually dwells with us to bring judgment upon those who reject him. Emmanuel brings hope in chapter 7, verse 14, and that's the hope that he would come someday and save us so we could dwell with him for eternity but for those who reject him, Emmanuel's presence actually means judgment. But you can see that down in, like I said, chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. Start, look up, look up in, I'm sorry, look in your Bibles at Isaiah chapter 7. Look at verse 17. If you follow all that down to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 10, you can see really God's presence there brings judgment against Judah, Assyria, Syria, and Israel. So all these countries who rejected God. In fact, let's just start in verse 17 of chapter 7. God promises Ahaz this. He says, 
Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you, so God's present with them, but he's against them because they have rejected his presence. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, Judah, and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And then he describes how bad it's going to be. I'm not going to read through all this, but you can see in verse 18, 20, 21, 23, he says, in that day, in that day, in that day. And I'll just sum it up for you. It's going to be really bad. God's going to judge them. It's going to be really bad. And then in chapter 8, he writes his son's name on a sign. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters. In other words, so that everyone could read it to the, to the youngest child, to the oldest. And here's what it's going to say. Belonging to Mayor Shalahashbaz is his son's name, which means that the Lord will come and judge for sin. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, and then skip down with me down to verse number five. So he speaks about his son being a prophecy. In verse five, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. In other words, they've, they've refused to trust in the Lord. And they've refused to drink from the well of the Lord and rejoice. And instead they rejoiced over Rezin, the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. He's describing Assyria coming down and wiping them out. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And he's, he's giving a picture of how severe this judgment's going to be. In verse 8, and the Syrian army, it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on and reach even up to the neck. So it won't kill them, but it will definitely hurt them. And it, out, and it outspreads wings and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. And then notice how he ends. Of your land, O Emmanuel, O God with us. So God with us, Emmanuel, what does that mean for Judah? It means since you rejected me, there's actually judgment coming against you. And so notice the name Emmanuel here is, is promised to come in, in 714 to save. But here he's already there. In fact, he, he owns the land. Who, who's the one who owns the land? It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's his land. So this is, this is the Lord himself. Yahweh is, or uh, Emmanuel is the Lord himself. And he declares he's also the sovereign. You can see that in verses 9 and 10. And he speaks to nations and they do what he says. In verse 9 he says, Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear. All you far countries, strap on your armor. Be shattered. Strap on your armor. Be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us, or Emmanuel. In other words, God's presence commands nations to do what he wills, and sometimes that means judgment. So God is with us. Emmanuel means that he is the sovereign king and distant armies does his will. And so God's presence, Emmanuel means that God's presence would come to judge by the power of Emmanuel. So Emmanuel comes to save, and that was in here, that in the distant future, he would come to save his people, and now his presence meant judgment for them. And then last, this is going to be my favorite part here. 
It is God's presence should rule the hearts under the rule, should rule the heart. I think I typed that wrong. It should rule hearts under the rule of Emmanuel. So God's presence should rule hearts under the rule of Emmanuel. We see God's presence with his people in the name Emmanuel there in, in chapter 7, verse 14, and 8, 8, and 8, 10. And then what we see in really chapter 8, verse 11, and the rest of the chapters, we see the hope of God's presence applied to his people. The application of God's presence, the application of Emmanuel for a believer's life really is found here, and we see it in the testimony here of Isaiah. Isaiah is tempted to be afraid by everything that's going to happen, that is happening. He had this trouble that was coming upon him in his country, but God actually calls him to trust in the presence of the Lord in his life and to have faith in him. Look down in verse 11. The Bible says, For the Lord thus spoke to me, that's Isaiah, and notice Emmanuel's presence. Notice God's presence. He's speaking to him with his strong hand upon me. God is directing him. Emmanuel is directing Isaiah. And warned me not to walk in the way of this people. And verse 12 do not call conspiracy, this is the Lord speaking, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. Really, he will become a place where you can meet with him. A stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So if Isaiah truly lives in the presence of God, if he truly seeks God's presence, then what's the result? First of all, he's not going to fear. He's not going to fear. I should say he's not going to fear what the world fears. And why is that? Because he knows the God who's on the throne. God is sovereign. His Lord is sovereign. God is with him. And so he trusts in his heavenly king who, who rules over massive armies, who sends armies from afar to do his bidding, who works in economies. He actually even is the one who will work out election results. That one was not in Isaiah. I inserted that one in there. But he's the sovereign. So everything that happens in the world today... As far as the, the economies of man, God is the one overseeing and governing that and bringing all things to the end that he intends. Therefore, the application of truly living in the presence of God means we have nothing to fear. If we acknowledge and believe that God is present with us, then we're saying, God, you're, you're here, you reign, and we submit to you, and therefore we have nothing to fear. And why is that? Because he's the Lord of hosts. Now, when you see that there in, that in the scripture there, where you see the Lord of hosts, does that remind you of anything? Do, do we remember that name any, anywhere, maybe last week in chapter 6? Remember that? Look over, flip over to chapter 6 and just see it there. The Lord of hosts, or you could say Yahweh of armies. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the fiery seraphim. Remember, they're on fire there's that heavenly army behind him and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So that Lord of hosts that he saw 
there with his own eyes as he looked into the heavenly throne room who was ruling as king. God says, listen, him you shall honor as holy. In other words, he is with you. And in chapter 8, God tells Isaiah, live in the reality that God is Emmanuel. He's God with you, that he dwells with you. That is to say this, live as if God is the king that is ruling right in front of you. I mean, he saw that vision, right? So he saw that vision up there. And at that moment, he recognized, God, your Lord, there's nothing to fear on this world, but to fear you. And he's saying, live in that reality throughout your life. Live in that reality throughout your life. I was reading about a preacher who I had a dream. Sometimes, you know, when you're studying something or you're doing something a lot, you go to bed at night and you dream about that. Some of my best illustrations come up when I'm dreaming, actually. No, probably not, actually. But anyways, this guy was, uh, this preacher was saying that, oh, he was studying a lot. And then so one night he had a dream that he was preaching. And sometimes those are nightmares, by the way. <laughs> anyways, he was, he was preaching and there was this um, elderly gentleman in the back, but he was very proper and he was all dressed up, had a cane. And, and so as he's preaching, he kept noticing this guy and didn't know who this guy was, but just thought, well, this guy is very distinguished. And so uh, he thought, well, I'm going to see this guy afterwards. And so this is his dream he's having. And so he got done with his sermon and he went to go find this man. He couldn't find him. So he went to one of his deacons and said, hey, where was that man at? That was, he was like, oh, he already left. And he said, well, who was that man? And the guy said, well, that man was, was Jesus Christ. And of course, this is a dream he was having. So he's like, so he, but his pastor said he woke up from his dream and he started thinking about that. And he thought, yeah, what if Jesus was sitting right there in the front row? How would that change my preaching? And actually, he said from that really day forward, he actually pictured in his mind Jesus Christ sitting right there listening to his message. And it changed his preaching dramatically. And I kind of think, you know, how would it change our life if we recognized, acknowledged the truth that Jesus is present with us? We're not really imagining as if it's true. We're actually acknowledging it is true. His presence is here with us. What, what would it, how would that change if you're a child or a teenager? How would that change for you when you're, you're playing a game or you're doing something with a sibling? If you recognize that Jesus was right there with you while you're watching TV or, or playing with your sibling, how would that change how you respond? I mean, how does it change when your mom's standing right there, right? Or how would it change for you as a mother when you're instructing your children? If Jesus was standing right there, how would it change how you respond? Or if you're at work and everyone's gone, you're all by yourself on the computer or doing some work and nobody sees you, but if Jesus was physically standing right there, how would it change how you respond? The point is the presence of God, acknowledging the presence of God changes how we respond. And so here the Lord is telling him to honor him as Emmanuel, as God is present with him. Now think about Isaiah as he was in that vision of Isaiah chapter 6. What was Isaiah afraid of on earth at that time? Think about it. In fact, look at verse 13. You can see this is almost a kind of a, a good description of chapter 6. And what he experienced. So look at chapter 7 verse 13. Sorry about that. Chapter 7 verse 13. I'm sorry. Chapter 8 verse 13. Wrong one. Having you flip around there. This is, this is pretty, a pretty good description of chapter 6. So chapter 8 verse 13. But the Lord of hosts 
Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Isn't that what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? You know, he saw the Lord and what happened to him? He got really scared. Why? Because he saw the holiness of God and he recognized that he deserved judgment because he was a sinner. But when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, let me think about this. When he was viewing that, do you think he was worried about anything on earth? You think he was like, oh no, did I leave that in the oven at home? You know, or, oh, I wonder what's going to happen with the housing market down in Jerusalem. You know, like what, what's happening with this army over there? What was the only thing that he was afraid of in heaven? It was the Lord. It was like, you're holy. And what did he recognize when he saw that vision? You're the king. Like, you do whatever you want to do. And therefore, what? There's nothing to fear on earth. Isaiah was not to fear earthly problems, but he was to honor the Lord as holy and fear him. And though verse 13 does not describe, it doesn't describe chapter 6, verse 13 is a command for Isaiah to live in the presence of God every day. Verse 13 is a command to set up the Lord as the holy Lord to be enthroned on your heart. Verse 13 is a command to every day live in the presence of God. Live as God is your Emmanuel. He is with us. Now I'm hoping as we're reading this verse that some of you are thinking, wow, this sounds super familiar. And I think, I think Pastor Ben might've taught on this a couple weeks ago. Is anyone thinking that? My pastor's heart really hopes that's the case. Because 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, already put it up there, kind of cheated, speaks of this. Actually, Peter records this verse uh, from Isaiah when he speaks to the church. Remember, the church was suffering. They were tempted to be afraid. Governments and people were going to their homes and causing them great suffering. And when they were afraid, what did they need to remember? Verse 14 of 1 Peter. You can see it on the screen up here. 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And then here's the quote. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Remember that when we spoke on that text? If Remember we said that that text means that we are to set apart Jesus Christ as the Holy Lord and we're to honor him. In other words, our hearts are to set him up on his holy throne and he's to rule every thought, every desire, every word, every action that we have. We're to trust that Jesus is God with me. He's with us and we're to honor him as our king. Now, now, physically right now, physically, Jesus is on the throne in heaven, but he, he's omnipresent, right? So he's actually present with us, but he has a special presence with believers, and that's the, in the, with the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, his spirit is with us, and we are to um, honor him, to have him rule our hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit. So the question really I think would be good for us to ask is, do you allow Christ to rule your heart? I mean, as we pictured that last week with, with Isaiah 
looking at the throne of God. And we could all picture ourselves saying, yes, I need to fall before the Lord as the Holy Lord. But do we on a daily basis, do we honor him as that king? Do we live in the reality that he's present with us all the time? Do we submit to his Holy Spirit? I think about, again, maybe a spouse in here. Do, do you live as if Jesus is the king of your marriage? Or maybe a co- someone who works a particular job in here, maybe. Do you, do you, do you work that job as Jesus is your boss? You do your best for him. We are to trust that he is the sovereign king on the throne now. We trust that he's a manual king. That means he rules in our heart by the power of his Holy Spirit. And also that means we don't have to fear what's happening in this world. It doesn't mean we're, we're, we do dumb things, okay? It doesn't mean you just go out in the street and find out if a car is going to hit you. That's called being dumb, okay? But this is saying there, we don't have to be afraid of the, the typical troubles that take place in our world because Jesus is the one who's in control and he's the one who rules our hearts. So that means everything that happens in our life, everything that happened to you this week, Jesus is the king. And this is the amazing thing to think about. He's the king who governs over everything, but yeah, he's the king that's within our hearts that brings us comfort and hope through his grace and his, his spirit. So look down in verse 13 in chapter eight. But the Lord of hosts, him, and who is that? We find out from Peter that's Jesus Christ. Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. Sanctuary is a holy place. For the Jewish people, that was the temple. So, so he, even though the temple is about to be destroyed, you can still enjoy the presence of God, Israel, and Judah, because he is going to be the sanctuary. Of course, that's speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God, so he is the presence of God. And when he lives within us through the power of his Holy Spirit, we are a sanctuary. We are a temple to the Lord. But look at, notice the rest of that verse. Those who reject him, he's their judge. He's a snare, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, in other words he's saying that Jesus, this Messiah, this Emmanuel is actually going to be the judge of those who reject him and his presence. And the point is this. The leaders of Israel rejected God's presence. They didn't acknowledge that the Lord was their king and they ignored him. In fact, actually in Jesus' day, Jesus applied this text to, to the, the leaders of his day. They didn't acknowledge the presence of Jesus as God, as Messiah. And those who reject the Lord and they reject his presence, the Lord will reject them. And that's really a sad reality. But God wants us as his people to enjoy his presence. Now, how do we do that? What does that look like to enjoy his presence? So I'm glad you asked because he goes on. Look at verse 16. Notice the presence of God was enjoyed by Isaiah through the words of God. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teachings among my disciples. So verse 16, Isaiah says, binds up. That means to wrap up the scrolls, make them say, protect the scripture. Protect the testimony. Testimony are, are the, the words that are true. The words of God that are true. Seal the teaching. Seal means to agree. This, this is the final word from God. 
teaching is the instructions of the word of God. So agree that this is God's instruction for us. And Isaiah was saying he would, he would hold fast to the scripture and he would trust that God speaks through his words. And that's as an opposed to everyone else. Look down in verse 19. And we'll get back to verse 17 in a moment. But verse 19, that's opposed to everyone else. What does everyone else do? Well, they go around. They inquire of mediums. They, they listen to the chirps and the mutter. They, they, they try to hear from people, frankly, who were dead. They um, seek the, the demonic spirit world. In fact, the end of verse 19, it says they inquire of the dead on the behalf of the living. But Isaiah says, no, don't do that. Verse 20, what do you go to? To the teachings, to the testimony, to God's word. How does God, how, how do we enjoy the presence of God? We go to God's word. God speaks to us in the word of God. And we speak to him in prayer. And so go back to verse 17, just as we conclude here. Notice this. So what does, how does Isaiah conclude, verse 17. I will wait for the Lord. In other words, Lord, the Lord is with me. I'm gonna wait for him. I'm gonna wait and look for him in the word of God who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. His presence is here, but, he, but it's like they can't see him. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. God is present with us. And the conclusion here, my friends, is this, that God is with us now. Some people say, well, I can't see God. I don't, where, where is God out? God at? Well, God is with us and he speaks to us through his word. And Christians, as, as believers, we enjoy the presence of God through the power of his Holy Spirit, yes, but through the words of God as he, as he speaks to us. And Jesus came as God with us so that he could save us and we can enjoy his fellowship. We can enjoy that presence of the Lord. Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God is with us. God dwelt with us in the incarnation. That's the birth of Jesus. He dwells with us through his Holy Spirit. And one day we will, we will dwell with him in a future earthly kingdom. Now let's take away this. A couple things. But let's, first of all, let's take away this. The Lord wants to fellowship with you. If you're without Christ in here and you're rejecting the Lord and his presence, in other words, you say, I'm gonna live my life my way, you must know this, that as you reject the Lord and he will reject you. And that's a sad reality. But the hope is those who come to him, who turn from their own way, who turn from their own sin, and they trust in Emmanuel. That's Jesus. That's God who came to us, who trusts in Jesus. Jesus, he lived the life for us that we could never live, and he died the death for us in our place. And he was resurrected so that we could dwell with him. And friends, for us in here, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be living in the presence of God every day. And how do we get to enjoy the presence of God? You don't have to come to this room, right? The truth is, this is just a building. It's a bunch of sticks and some wires, some electricity going through it. You can enjoy the presence of God in your own home, wherever you are. As you go to his word, you read his word, 
and you speak to him. And I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we like Isaiah, who is running to the word of God, to the testimonies, to the teachings, to the word of God? I want to enjoy your presence, Lord. Are we like Isaiah that say, eh, I think I'm going to figure life out myself, Lord. (laughs) I don't really have time for you. I got my own ideas. And unfortunately, the sad reality is, is that that's not the way of Christ. That's the way of death. So let me call you to come to Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, I am in awe when I study the word and I see just how so many connections take place in the scriptures between Old Testament, New Testament. And the more we study, the more we dig, the more we realize that this word that you've given to us, the scriptures are just a wealth of information. But it's not just information. It's not just wonder. Because Lord, it speaks of you who is the God of wonder, the God of of grace, it's actually, God, what's amazing isn't all the connections. It's that, that, God, you have spoken to us and you want to fellowship with us. And we're in danger here of speaking your word this morning and just writing it off as another time where we listen to someone speaking about the Bible. But, Lord, this is not that. This should be a time where we engage with you and we recognize that you are here with us and we must submit to you. And I pray for anyone listening right now that, that has had the Holy Spirit convict their heart. May they respond and not be like Ahaz, not go down that path of destruction and rejection, but may they be like Isaiah. May they be like Christ who trusts, who trusted and who lived for the glory of the Father. I pray, Lord, that you will bind our hearts to the word of God. I pray we'll submit to the King. And we're so thankful that we can rejoice in this. Jesus Christ, you're in charge. You're, our fears can sometimes come into our hearts and rule our hearts. And we can think, say, and do some things that are very hurtful to ourselves. I pray that you will rule our hearts so that we'll have faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.